Have you ever taken somebody else's recommendation for something? Maybe it's something simple like a food recommendation or a movie or a band. When I was younger, I found myself pretty susceptible to like fast food advertising. I mean, there's a whole science to it, making fast food look like real food. And something that I've learned since dieting is that fast food is not really food. It's more of an approximation of real food. But when I was in high school, like early high school, like 2002 high school, I was particularly susceptible to the $1 McDonald's Big and Tasty Hamburger. I remember me and Buddy used to dig change out of his car just to find like eight or nine or ten quarters so we could go into McDonald's and get us each a Big and Tasty. And then we would sit there in the parking lot and just talk about bands and music and eat our burgers. The Big and Tasty was like a competitor to Burger King's Whopper. It was like a fairly big burger. And I think the ones that we had even had bacon on them. I think it was like maybe another quarter for bacon. I can't exactly remember. I think maybe another quarter for cheese. Um, but man, the other kids at our school like raved about the Big and Tasty. Like, dude, you need to get a Big and Tasty. It's so good. Oh my God, dude. I walked into a Burger King. So, uh, yeah, I clearly meant to say McDonald's here. I was just thinking about a lot of different fast food burgers while I was recording this. And I, I said Burger King. I just want to apologize to everybody for that heinous mistake that I made there. Thanks. With a $5 bill. And I walked out with four big and tasties and like a small French fry. Like it was the coolest thing. And I think the attraction to it really though was that it was cheap. You know, like everybody's chowing down on big and tasties because it doesn't cost a whole lot. And um, it was kind of just like that for a while until I think around 2003 when they pulled out the uh, the buck double or whatever it was called where it was like a uh, or maybe it was the Mick double I can't remember now I remember that they were selling something to where it was like a double cheeseburger but it had like only one piece of cheese in the middle like it was too expensive for another piece of cheese I don't know and the interesting thing is why people loved them so much I think the whole idea for a dollar, it'll fill you up and it'll satisfy your hunger. So Buddy and I like to have our hunger satisfied too. So we'd sit down, we'd eat two big and tasties each, and then we'd hang out all afternoon. But almost every single time, we would be hungry again within like three or so hours. And that's not the big and tasties fault, that's fast food in general. It's just an overload of sugar and carbs that your body feels like it has to have. But ultimately, it just doesn't satisfy your body's needs. And I also felt that same way about social groups in my high school. In my Incubus Make Yourself episode, I talked a lot about how I struggled finding my place within social groups. And how I ultimately found my place as the music guy. And while that's 100% what happened, I kind of skimmed over how much time that actually took for me to establish. And I didn't really talk about the other group that I found myself trying to fit into when I entered high school. Because I remember the first few weeks of high school, they were pretty lonely. Like, there were some kids that I knew from middle school, but the kids that I had the best chance of interacting with... They didn't have the same classes as me, or they didn't have the same lunch break as me. 
because each semester your lunch break changed and you'd be with different kids versus the kids it was for the first semester. Anyway, I remember during those weeks, I just sat alone at lunch to the point where I just started going to the school library on lunch every day and didn't really bother interacting with anybody. It was kind of sad. But eventually, I did find some foothold with some of the kids who were part of the speech and drama clubs in my high school. And that group of kids kind of took me in, kind of the same way that somebody would take in like a stray dog. And I was initially attracted to that group because they were dorks, just like me. And, you know, there were actually girls there. Uh, And I think they related to my level of social awkwardness. And so it was nice to have a table to sit at. And people to talk to at lunch. And I interacted with most of them by talking about my favorite bands and CDs that I had obtained. Because, you know, so much has changed in 20 years, right? However, a few of them started inviting me to this Christian group that they all attended pretty much every week. And it wasn't a church group necessarily. It was part of some nationwide organization called Campus Crusade for Christ. And they met outside of school at one of the kids' houses, and his parents facilitated the group every week. And I remember reluctantly going to a few of these meetings, as well as the morning prayer meetings with the same kids. And I was shocked by the diversity of kids who attended this group. I think at one point, maybe there were like, maybe 100 kids there? Maybe I'm wrong. It was just one house. But I mean, there were kids everywhere, just spilling out of the front yard, backyard, living room, you name it. But we all came together in the living room for the actual meeting. Because I remember we would show up there, and for the first hour, we would sort of just hang out and talk. And we listened to a whole bunch of like rad Christian rock bands. And then we would pray. And then the kid who hosted it would do like the lesson. And he would lead an entire group discussion on biblical topics. And then we would just hang out there until our parents showed up to pick us up, or in my case, whoever I got to ride home with, which was usually Buddy. Uh, There was also food provided, which was a huge selling point. And that's obviously the group that I met Buddy in. And we talk about how our relationship blossomed in the Drawing Black Lines episode of this podcast. The thing that struck me as incredible was how accepting everybody was there. Like, accepting of my music preferences, my favorite TV shows, my favorite video games. Hey, and did I did I mention there were girls there? Uh, kids from all walks of life came together for this purpose of strengthening their relationships with Christ as a group. And it was mind-blowing to go from having no friends at the start of the school year to having dozens of friends by Christmas that year. And I really enjoyed my time there and the sense of camaraderie that it created. It was this huge self-confidence boost because people would talk to me and actually care how I was doing and what I was up to, which, to be honest, really wasn't much. And during the week, people would call me on my home telephone and invite me to things like parties, concerts, church services, movies, you name it. It was absolutely wild and unexpected. So, I joined that group. Then I really got into Dead Poetic. And then everything worked out great for me from then on, right? Well, trust me, I wish that was the case, but um, welcome to this podcast, if this is your first episode. Now, before I get caught up in the story of this episode, I do want to talk about hearing Dead Poetic for the first time. 
I remember hearing their song A Green Desire on a website called Godcore.com sometime in 2002. And I remember thinking that the screaming vocals were some of the craziest and most extreme that I'd ever heard up to that point. They had this high-pitched rasp that I would eventually fall in love with with bands like Zayo, and they were in full effect here. But at that time, myself and Buddy were really into the whole singing plus screaming dynamic of heavy music because we were really into new metal and we were kind of just starting to transition out of that. But that dead poetic song really fit the bill. It was singing, it was screaming, it was it was all the good things that we looked for in cool Christian rock bands. And I remember finding Four Wall Blackmail in a Christian bookstore at the local mall. And I remember it was like $17.99 for the CD, and I just straight up couldn't afford it. That was still a little bit high even for then. I think by then like CDs were like $13.99, 14 it was usually somewhere less than 15 bucks, but at Christian bookstores, there was always like almost an inflation of up to like $17.99, $18.99, $19.99, something like that. And so I didn't drive back then, and I had no idea when I was going to be able to come back up to the mall to buy the CD when I did have enough money. And this was a little bit before I realized I could trade in video games for cash to buy CDs. And that's another thing I regret now, now that I'm saying it out loud. But oh well, it was over a month before I got back to the mall again. And I remember being terrified that whole time that it was going to be gone. Which was an early example of this pattern I have of worrying about things that I have absolutely no control over. And as is usually the case, my stress was completely unfounded. The copy was still there. Because who besides me and Buddy were looking for a dead poetic CD in a Christian bookstore in 2002 in St. Louis? We should have been friends with whoever that person was. Anyway, I threw down my well-earned $20 and I walked out with the CD. And I remember the booklet had these weird instructions in it based around the four walls theme of the album title. You could like cut out pieces of the liner notes to make your own four walls or like this little like paper wall structure. It was really dumb, but but I totally did it. I mutilated the liner notes of a CD I paid $17.99 plus tax for just because it was a thing I could do. I'll post pictures of the mutilated liner notes on Discord later if anybody wants to see them. The thing that I found striking about this album in particular, especially in hindsight, was how straight up sad and painful the lyrics were. As was strangely typical of heavier Christian music at that time, the lyrics were all about pain and loss and feelings of inadequacy. About not ever feeling like you're good enough for God and having to somehow make sense of that struggle. It's something that you might not think a 15-year-old would find relatable, but if you grew up in the unique culture in that specific time period like I did, this all totally makes sense. And in this episode, I'm going to try to explain why. 
there was an emotional sincerity to the anguished screams and the sad singing on this album. And I heard this before I ever knew the words emo or screamo, so I had no idea that this was typical when I was hearing it. And this is one of those albums where I can't figure out if I related to it because it spoke to me and it spoke to what I was going through at the time or if I just remember it that way in hindsight. Let's dig in and see. remember from the mortification scrolls of the megaloth episode i grew up in a very extremely conservative religious household and my family had stopped going to that church several years before i started high school and we didn't really have a whole lot to do with religion after that at some point my parents had just had enough of it and if you'd asked me if i believed in god anytime in middle school or that first semester of high school i would have said no and that's not a well-informed atheist by any stretch of the imagination, because I still totally believed in God. How could I not after having that childhood? But instead of understanding the idea of deconstructing or trying to make sense of it in a healthy way, I just kind of acted like it was all bullshit and chose not to talk about it. So when I started going to this group and participating in stuff like prayer, it was kind of hard to do that comfortably. They didn't pray the same way that we prayed at my old church, but there were some similarities. For instance, people would get deep into prayer and speak with an exaggerated tone. You guys know what I'm talking about, that important voice that people pull out when they're talking to God. People would tell me how they felt the spirit of God and could feel his hands touching them. And I'll just be honest with you guys, I never felt anything. I mean, sometimes you could get wrapped up in the emotion of prayer and the emotion of being surrounded by people who genuinely cared about you. But I never physically felt a hand touching me. And as a kid, I always figured it was just because I didn't believe enough. And I kind of felt that way as a teenager too. And maybe it was a problem with me that I couldn't feel God, but there were also differences in theology, which I'm not going to get deep into, but obviously whatever denomination this group originated from differs a lot from what I was taught in church growing up. The girls could cut their hair and they could wear shorts and pants and the guys could have piercings and tattoos. We are allowed to and encouraged to listen to Christian rock music. And I'll kind of get into that side of things here uh, in a little while. I think the biggest struggle for me during this time was that I was so enraptured by how many friends I had now. And it's a really unique feeling that I haven't really felt since that time period. However, as time went on, I increasingly found myself not being on the same page as all of my new friends. And I had to learn a lot about their subculture via a lot of trial and error. For instance, at first, I used profanity pretty freely. And people kind of let me get away with it in the beginning because I was, in their words, a baby Christian. And you can't expect a baby Christian to act quote-unquote godly at first. But eventually, somebody sat me down and told me that this was not acceptable behavior in the group. 
And so mortified, I like made sure to hold my tongue and, and to get myself out of the habit of doing that. And there was other stuff too. Like for instance, drinking and smoking was heavily frowned on. And I was like 15 at the time. So, I mean, it's not like I was really doing any of that stuff anyway, but it was so hard coded into the culture that if given the opportunity, a good example of Christ does not smoke, curse, drink, fool around with the person they're dating, or anything like that. And as human behavior predictably goes, if somebody in the group was discovered doing any of those things, they weren't necessarily kicked out of the group, but they were for sure frowned on and gossiped about behind their back. Shit talk definitely exists within Christian groups in the form of prayer requests. For example, uh, I'd like to pray for Susie right now because she is currently uh, going to parties and drinking. And uh, she's living in sin with her boyfriend. And uh, I'm just concerned about her. Sometimes that kind of thing would happen when the person was in the same room or in the same prayer circle. And it seems more messed up now than it did back then. But in the spirit of having friends and fitting in, I kind of just spent that time learning what the rules were like the culture rules and learning the terminology, learning what baby Christian means, what secular music means, what, you know, what the meat and the milk of the scripture is, you know, and just all these words that, that you, that people used. It was also the first time in my life I ever unironically used the word non-believer, but it was like, it was like a legit thing that you could, you could say, and it, it wasn't weird. And a lot of this was based on actual biblical principles but I also didn't agree with some of their views on forgiveness and how they would preach forgiveness and acceptance. But if Susie from the prayer request was present in the group, well, she was never invited to lead the group in prayer. So maybe it wasn't intentional, but it was certainly a factor. And there was this implied guilt associated with everything that we were open about. I also learned pretty quickly that it was better to get out in front of things in the group versus being discovered doing something bad. For instance, if a friend's over at my house and uses my computer and notices in my search history that I was looking at, you know, 56K low-res porn on the internet, then eventually the rest of the group was going to find out about that. And they would address it with guilt or shunning. Maybe somebody would say something directly to you about it, maybe not. However, if nobody knows anything about my web activity and I feel guilty about it, then it was smarter to go to a member of the group and say, man, I've really been struggling with looking at internet porn. Please pray for me and help me overcome this. And then it was all good because I recognized my sin, right? Now, none of this probably sounds too out of the ordinary for anybody who regularly attends a church. But keep in mind that we were a bunch of 15 and 16-year-old kids. Like, sure, we had adults who facilitated what we were doing, and they were opening their homes, and they would regularly solicit life advice to us. But looking back at it now, it feels like we were holding on to a lot of pent-up adult-style guilt that I feel like other kids our age probably weren't dealing with. 
And if you combine that guilt with the level of self-doubt that teenagers are dealing with anyway, it creates a really unique situation. I was just so concerned with being a part of something, though, that I was willing to push down my doubts and my concerns. I had my own guilt associated with being a part of that group. I felt like a liar for a couple of reasons. The first reason is I would regularly agree with people who were saying things that I didn't actually agree with. But I was just doing that so that I could keep up the appearance of having a strong understanding of what our mission and goal was, which was to reach as many people for Jesus as we could. And part of doing that was having a good witness. And in order to keep up a good witness, I couldn't just stop and make a big stink every time somebody said something I didn't agree with. So I went along with it. And that made me feel like a liar and a fake. And secondly, I really felt like a liar and a fake because I wasn't totally sure if I actually believed any of it. And that's the million dollar question that I get doing these podcasts is, hey, Dan, are you a believer or aren't you? And I always give the same frustrating answer, which is always something along the lines of probably because I, I feel like, and maybe I'm wrong here, but I feel like every time somebody asks me that question, they're just trying to decide whether or not to write me off as somebody that they can continue listening to or not. Um, maybe I'm wrong, but that's just, that's the way it feels. But at the time, I would say that my belief could best be described as sometimes. Like, I wanted to feel it, and I wanted to believe it very badly. And it would have made me feel a hell of a lot better if I had just believed with all my heart with no questions or no strings attached. But I just didn't always. But it was imperative that I appeared as if I did. So I did all the things that you're supposed to do. I prayed with other kids. I did prayer requests. I counseled other kids who needed help sort of talking through things. And sometimes I even got to participate in leadership. And it made me feel good. It made me feel important, but it also made me feel horrible because I knew at the end of the day that I was a fake. And I had to deal with that night after night. I would just be up late feeling sick to my stomach with stress and sort of longing to fix what was wrong with me. And I just wanted to be satisfied by all of this because... Everyone around me also seemed to be totally filled by the group and by God. And I just feel like I never truly got to that place.
Despite all of this, I spent the better part of high school participating in group activities and just trying to be a help when I could be and where I could be. But I also did a lot of observation. I observed what the rules of the group were. I observed how our group leader could emotionally lead the vibe of an entire room. Just imagine like a normal living room with a circle of 20 or 30 kids all vibing the exact same way. Much the same way a rock star is able to control a crowd, this kid was an amazing public speaker. Which is something that I was always envious of. I always wanted to be able to move people with my words. So I learned a lot from him. And I figured out through observation what the correct responses were to nearly every situation that would come up. I gave up a bit of my individuality in order to be a better fit and a real part of something bigger than myself. And when the older kids graduated and left, I stepped up and I began to lead the group myself with newer and younger kids. It was almost like a corporate ladder climb, like starting out at the bottom and then ending strong at the top. But you know what I figured out eventually? Much like that big and tasty sandwich from McDonald's, a few hours later, or in this case, years later, I wasn't full. I wasn't fulfilled. I wasn't satisfied. And I think it was because I never had that connection with God that I was supposed to have. That connection that I truly wanted to have. And no amount of play acting was ever going to cover that up. Like, no matter what, it wasn't just going to get better until I had that belief locked down. And I think the other people in the group realized that as well. I remember everybody kind of going off to college and seemingly just casting all of that Christian stuff aside. In a way, they had kind of outgrown it. And it was almost like there was something fundamentally wrong with selling the idea of God as cool and trendy. Hank Hill warned me about this on one of my favorite episodes of King of the Hill, which I unfortunately didn't see until years later. It's the famous episode uh, where Hank says, you aren't making Christianity any better. You're just making rock and roll worse. But that's not the clip I want to play. At the end of the episode, Hank pulls Bobby off stage at a Christian rock show and takes him home. And he shows Bobby a box of all of the old trendy stuff that he used to collect throughout his childhood. And it goes a little something like this. You can give me the stink eye all you want, but it's not going to change anything. Fine, but when I'm 18, I'm going to do whatever I want for the Lord. Tattoos, piercings, the works. Well, I'll take that chance. Come here, something I want to show you. Remember this? My beanbag buddy. Oh man, I can't believe I collected those things. They're so lame. You didn't think so five years ago. And how about your virtual pet? You used to carry this thing everywhere. Then you got tired of it, forgot to feed it, and it died. I look like such a dork. I know how you feel. <laughs> I never thought that members-only jacket would go out of style, but it did. I know you think that stuff you're doing now is cool, but in a few years, you're going to think it's lame. And I don't want the, uh, Lord to, uh, you know, end up in this box. That's episode two of season eight if you want to watch the whole thing sometime. And I think that clip kind of explains why I sat there so entrenched in that culture, even after high school, because 
ultimately I wanted to keep that feeling of belonging while watching everyone slowly get off the train and move on. And to Hank's point, maybe God is more important than something trendy. And maybe it's not always the best move to mix a lifelong belief structure with things that are cheap and accessible. And that's just my two cents. So you'd think that by knowing that, that I would have moved on too. But sadly, I didn't. I doubled down, man. And it got really, really bad before it got any better. But I'll talk more about that in the Project 86 Truthless Heroes episode in Season 2. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of DFT's Dungeon. My name is Daniel Terry, and I've got two more episodes this season for you guys before I take a six-week break. The last episode of the season, episode 20, is going to drop on December 4th, and then I'm going to take a few weeks off, and I will be back to debut season two on January 22nd of 2023. If you guys like this episode and you like the podcast, please make sure that you subscribe to it on whatever podcasting app that you use. And uh, maybe even leave it a review if that's the kind of thing that you want to do. And uh, guys, I just really appreciate everybody that's listened, everybody that's subscribed, and everybody that's just made this season as fun for me as humanly possible. And um, if you guys want to talk to me or hang out or, or, or shoot the breeze... I have a Discord server. There's a link to it in the show notes of this episode. And uh, that's pretty much where I hang out uh, when I'm not doing podcasts. It's the place to get a hold of me the most easily. I am also on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, if Twitter's still a thing by the time this episode comes out. And uh, I'll have a link down below that'll take you to all those places as well as an invite to the Discord. But uh, I hope to hear from you guys soon. But if I don't, that's totally okay too. I will see you guys next week. Yeah, right now. Yeah.